Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to part two of our epic two-part episode of Hell and High Water with my dear friend, the one and only Nicole Wallace. If you haven't listened to part one already, if you just stumbled onto this podcast and you don't realize that there was even a part one, you really got to hit the pause button right now. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Just go back and listen to part one of the podcast so you can hear Nicole talk powerfully, movingly, with great force and urgency about the January 6th committee in the House and what's at stake for the country in that, Liz Cheney's moral clarity, Donald Trump's increasingly irrefutable criminality, Ginny Thomas's brain rot, Clarence Thomas's corruption, and Ukrainian President Zelensky's status, in Nicole's words, as a, quote, leader for the ages. When we're talking about Zelensky's address to Congress, he did by Zoom a few weeks ago. Nicole mentioned the effectiveness of his invocation of some seminal moments in American history, Pearl Harbor, and she mentioned 9-11, which of course was a powerful moment in that speech. And it got me thinking about that fateful day and the fact that Nicole was working in the White House on that day for George W. Bush. And so that is where we pick back up at the start of part two of the podcast. And just to remind you, there was some construction happening outside Nicole's home while we were recording, so you will occasionally hear a little bit of annoying bang and clatter in the background, which you should obviously just ignore and focus instead on the dulcet tones and irrepressible brilliance of Ms. Wallace. On the previous episodes of this podcast, we've discussed your history, we talked about your youth and your your drift away from journalism and into politics, and then your drift back into journalism, which you're doing now. We've talked about why you were a Republican. I want to very precisely ask you to just reflect on it, because we never really talked about this, I've, and I'm, I may have heard you talk about it at some point, or maybe we've talked about it, but I want to play the closest thing that, if you think about the, the way in which a leader meets a moment of crisis, the closest thing I've seen, and my listeners are going to hate me for saying this, but when I went back and looked at this, it still gives me chills to see your former boss, George W. Bush, down on at ground zero after 9-11. And that moment was, you know, again, perfection as a moment in politics, as a moment of communication. So I want to play that, and I want to take you back and ask you to just talk about what those days were like after 9-11 and what led up to this moment of George W. Bush on the pile. Let's play that. In prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn, this nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... So let's stipulate that we both would agree that George W. Bush is not a perfect president and, and he's got some big things wrong. 
But for a country and a city reeling from what happened on 9-11, that moment was meaningful to a lot of people. And I still think as a matter of just, and I again, I don't mean to trivialize it, but as a matter of political performance at a time when it counted, he hit the perfect note there. So I just uh, just talk about what that was like, that time and the stresses and the pressures and and how he ended up there delivering those remarks that, again, you know, I think will live in history forever. No, I think when you're a staffer, it's about the moment. I think even for him, it was about the country. And I think the reason that moment endures, and I think that President Obama's leadership after Newtown and President Clinton's leadership after Oklahoma City and Zelensky's leadership day after day after day for the last 40 days, they're all in the same category of what Bush says there is being on your knee. And when a country is on its knees, can the leader stand there, go down on the ground on his knees in their pain and get them back up? And I think that that is what that speech was. That's its enduring value. And the part that I think some people skip to is the getting back up. But the reason that speech is still played and examined in this instance, mostly by people who weren't fans of much of the rest of or everything that led up to the Bush years, and I'm obviously not in that category, it's not because of the getting back up, right? We'll debate the ways that the country got back up with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the policies, many of which were continued by the Obama presidency, but the way he got down, the way he got down on the country's knees, on New York's knees, on the crumbled you know, iron of the World Trade Center with them. You know, and we've been talking about Zelensky. You know, Zelensky had this line in that address where he says, what is the purpose of life if you can't stop death? And I think it's sort of balancing, you know, sort of sitting in the pain and the trauma of the assault, of the attack from an evil force. In Bush's case, it was al-Qaeda, bin Laden. But getting the, the sort of standing back upright is what, you know, I think you and I do what we do to study how people get back up after they're hit. And it ends up wrapped in policy and politics and the election that came after that. The midterms were this one example of midterm history defying the history of a president's party. And it's about asking these questions of how do you want to get back up? What do you do when you're knocked down? The thing about 9-11 is it guts me just as much now. I mean, I cannot walk around lower Manhattan without crying. And I, I anchored the anniversary this year with Brian Williams and cried through the whole thing. And I have a 10 year old now who wants to understand it. And it just, it just undoes me. And I think maybe that's part of getting older. Things get mushier and they get grayer and they feel sadder. But um, I think, you know, I feel proud to have worked for him on that day. I was back in the white house working on the, um, you know, that was an incredibly intense period of time, obviously. And, and we were all told to go back to our offices as soon as we were allowed in. That was Bush's belief that we stood up to terrorists by going back to work. Right. But we were rushed out for, you know, false alarms once a week, I think for several weeks after. And, and you know, Reagan is right there. So anytime a plane was sort yeah. of off course, but it's, it's still a really harrowing time. I think what Bush would say though, is that it was never about him. And, sure. and even the pitch is still sort of studied around the 20 year anniversary, a lot of Bush's speeches and, and actions. Yeah. It was all about, you know, getting the country back on its feet. But do you remember on that day, you said you were back in the White House. Do you remember watching that on live TV? Yeah. I mean, I interviewed Elizabeth Bumiller around the anniversary. It wasn't a live feed because if you remember, you know, oh, there, was, right. there were no yeah. satellites. So it was right. fed back. Right. And even the pool reports, you know, it wasn't like live tweeted. It was all right. fed back. 
So we heard about it before we saw it. How much of that, you know, I mean, I know there have been books written about this and I'm sure I probably have read them even, <laughs> but <laughs> like how much of that was improvised and how much of that was, was scripted? How much did he anticipate? I mean, I think it was all improvised. And I think, you know, he had such a bond with his advanced folks. And it was a very small group that went with him that day. And it was uh, one of his advanced women, I believe, who handed him the bullhorn because he was up there shouting. And I mean, a lot's been written about the fire truck he was standing on. It was, you know, flattened. You know, I also remember that day he went to the armory where he met with all the families of first responders who were waiting for word. And, you know, he said that he knew and they knew but it wasn't really discussed that nobody was coming out of the towers. You know, yeah. they were waiting for word, but, but they weren't recovering anybody from the towers. They were recovering remains. And he was given the badge from Officer Howard's mother. And he carried it with him, you know, for the rest of his presidency. And, and whatever you want to say, and people say it all, and I'm happy to hear it because we should debate the decisions that were made afterward. You know, what Bush did in terms of governing after that day was to try to prevent another 9-11 from happening. And I think that he's happy to take the hits and the criticisms if the result was that another 9-11 didn't happen on his watch. So, you know, because we've talked about in the past your trajectory through your republicanism to where you are now and what the changes were in the party you know, that led you to not be what you once were in that sense, not a professional Republican and not really even a Republican anymore. I want to spend a lot of time on that, but I do want to do this because I think it's a worthwhile thing to just think through. And I'm really eager to hear your thoughts about it. I want to play Trump now from last week for the thing that got all the attention when he said the thing about Putin, where he did his, you know, Russia, are you listening thing yet again? And he is an ex-president now. He's not a current president. It's not his country's not under attack right now. So there's a little apples and oranges quality here. But I do think there's something worth pointing out about George W. Bush and Donald Trump and then asking a question about it directly to you, Nicole. So let's play this Trump thing and we'll go from there. One thing while I'm on your show, as long as Putin now is not exactly a fan of our country, let him explain where did, because Chris Wallace wouldn't let me ask the question, why did the mayor of Moscow's wife Give the Bidens, both of them, three and a half million dollars. That's a lot of money. I would think Putin would know the answer to that. I think he should release it. I think we should know that answer. So with all the caveats and all the things we've discussed, you are in the end still proud of the work that George W. Bush did and the work you did for George W. Bush, right? There's things that I'm sure you had some disagreements with, whatever. But basically, when you look back on that, you're like, I'm proud of my service in that administration, right? Yes. And you look at Donald Trump saying the things that he has said in countless ways. The thing about this thing about Putin is it's not new. It's not unpredictable. It's the most predictable thing in the world. This is who Trump is, right? The question I ask is this. How do you explain not the change in your own view about republicanism and and how you see yourself relative to the party, but how do you explain how the Republican Party goes from George W. Bush, who was president all the way until 2009, in seven years to a party that embraces a man like that, who can say those things, not once, not twice, but over and over again, things like what he said about Vladimir Putin. And and feel free to comment about the thing he said about Putin and Hunter Biden. I'm happy to hear what you have to say about that in the short term. But the biggest question in my mind about the Republican Party is still how in that little time you went from that man, George W. Bush, with all of his flaws, president for two terms 
embraced by his party, yeah. loved by his party, to Donald Trump, equally embraced and maybe even more embraced and beloved by his party. What the fuck happened there? So I think that part of the reason we miss the most important threat to the country is because we can't get past what Ron Klain described as disgusting. Those comments from Trump are disgusting. And people shouldn't be confused about what he did. He put himself on the other side of Chris Wallace and Joe Biden, an American journalist who Donald Trump described American media as the enemy of the people, and Joe Biden, who he sought to sully up and was impeached one time and then deny his victory, he was impeached a second time for doing that. So Donald Trump took the side of someone who America has described as a war criminal in that divide. And I think there's this new, you know, axis of evil, I, I see it as, between Trump, Tucker Carlson, and Vladimir Putin. And I think we should call it that, and I think we should examine it as such. But I think that what we miss, when Donald Trump said that, even Mitt Romney had pretty mild criticism for him. And the story of our time is the rot of the Republican Party, its inability to stand up, not for decency, that's what it would have been to walk away from Trump after the Access Hollywood tape, mm -hmm. not for racial equality, that's what it would have been if they walked away from him after the good people on both sides of a KKK rally, not for anti-corruption, that's what it would have been if they'd refused to meet with him at his hotel in Washington, D.C., but for anti-authoritarianism. And the fact that the Republicans will not stand up against Donald Trump's authoritarian impulses, the fact that Republicans go on the Tucker Carlson show, he has associated himself with an alleged war criminal. He is taking up Russian propaganda without even laundering it, which is sort of the old way of doing it. He's just mainlining it to his, he has a massive audience and he is mainlining it to them. And until we treat the Republican Party as the autocratic force that it is and the threat to democracy that it is, things will get worse. It doesn't matter who the Republicans nominate in 2024. As a party, and in terms of numbers, they're one of the largest autocratic forces in the world. And I will spend the rest of my days calling them out and letting the chips fall where they may. But until that autocratic force is dismantled and defeated in election after election, it threatens every single thing that we take for granted in our democracy, a free press, imprisoning our political enemies. I mean, we came so close. And the story of the Trump presidency isn't of the norms prevailing. It's of every norm barely surviving, of Andy McCabe and Jim Comey barely evading criminal prosecution. It's a story of the press barely surviving Trump's surveillance of them and abuse of them and attack of them. It's a story of the Democratic opponent barely winning. I mean, he had a huge victory in the popular vote, but electorally, it was very close. And I think that until everyone sees the Republicans as the threat to the democracy, that they're happy to be. They don't blush or sweat when you say they're hostage to the autocratic impulses recognized the world over. They don't give a shit. That is who they are. And until they're called out and held to account and defeated in elections, that will remain the biggest threat to the country. Yeah, and it's not just politicians, Nicole, who need to be held to account. There's also this malign, malignant, cancerous, just absolutely corrosive force in our world. I would call it the right-wing media sphere writ large, but in particular Fox News, because so many, many millions of people watch it. And on that network, there is one 
person who needs to be held to account above all. He's the most popular person on Fox News. He's also the most popular person in all of cable news, primetime host of a show that millions of people watch in this great God-fearing nation of ours. And he's a strange duck. He says a lot of weird shit, but there is nothing weirder than his obsessive, compulsive, romantic, I mean, nearly erotic relationship with Vladimir Putin. And that, you know who I'm talking about now. I'm talking about Tucker Carlson. So let's listen to Tucker talking about Putin at his absolutely most disgusting and deplorable. Since the day that Donald Trump became president, Democrats in Washington have told you you have a patriotic duty to hate Vladimir Putin. Very soon, that hatred of Vladimir Putin could bring the United States into a conflict in Eastern Europe. Before that happens, it might be worth asking yourself, since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? These are fair questions, and the answer to all of them is no. Vladimir Putin didn't do any of that. You asked the question to me, I think I could say this off camera the other day on set where you were like, what's the deal with Tucker and Putin? Because like, it's not like Putin rates, you know, Trump, at least you understood that Fox was making money off that. Like, how does Putin help Tucker? I don't know if I'm just naive or something and I'm just an idiot that I don't get it. But it's like, I don't see, you know, what it is that's motivating Tucker in this because it's not like Putin's popular, even among the Fox base. Right. And actually, this came from a, a former Fox person who said the Trump bet was commercial and literally and figuratively. The Putin bet is neither commercial, like there's sanctions. There's no business to be had in Russia. And 1% of Americans like Putin. So it's not commercial, literally. So that leaves you with the only thing that's left, which is an ideological meeting of the minds, which is fucking terrifying. Yes, utterly terrifying. I do want to play this, though. This is a nice, long, fat clip, and I shouldn't have <laughs> she probably used that word. I'll say it's a nice, long clip. <laughs> when Chris Christie put his book out, this gets the kind of question, right, of like the future of your former party. Chris Christie puts a book out. Chris Christie's going to come and save the Republican Party. And here's his book that he's got. And he goes on set with Nicole Wallace. And this is what happened in that. This is a condensed version of what happened. It was excruciating and very satisfying. The book is called, um, it's about conspiracies and lies, and you really don't take on Fox News. Why not? Look, because the book was... Have you seen the Tucker Carlson no, because, because the book, no, I, I don't watch it, but the book... Are you aware of what he does? Not really. I don't pay a lot of attention it's, to it. It's a book but, but, with but, truth but, deniers, but, conspiracy theorists on right, the cover, right. and you and, attack and, CNN and, and the New York Times and MSNBC and not but, Fox. But, but excuse me, I don't attack them as conspiracy theorists or truth deniers. I talk about bias. It is bias more dangerous to the country than conspiracy theorists? No, but that's the third section of the book. Do you think that Fox News in prime time is good for the country or bad? uh, Listen, there are shows that I like in Fox News, and there are shows that I don't like. Like, there are shows that I like. Are you afraid to question the purveyors of conspiracy Uh, theories and By the way, but that's your opinion. You're welcome to your opinion, like everybody else in this country is welcome to your opinion. I don't consider people like Sean Hannity or Laura Ingram. Uh, purveyors. I didn't say of, either of their names. Well, Tucker Carlson. I, you, you said you said the evening news programs at Fox. The eight PM hour. And by, well, and, and as I told you, I don't watch the show. What was your reaction in the moment to that? Well, unfortunately for me and Chris, I was incapable of restraining my reaction in the moment. I was I was horrified. I mean, to put 
an attack on conspiracy theorists and liars as the subhead on your book and then stay silent on the most prolific conspiracy theorist and liar in the American right-wing media was to me just, I, I didn't, I didn't understand it. And Chris Christie wasn't able to really explain it. I mean, I said it was satisfying and a lot of people cheered to see you point out the logical inconsistencies and really to point out how cowardly he was being and listening to him try to sort of dodge and parse and prevaricate through. And it was like, okay, yeah, man, she's holding him to account. And that was great. I agreed with that. It was also just sad though. I mean, there was also just kind of like, that's a guy like who, whether you agreed with him or not for a long period of time, he was a take no bullshit, take no prisoners guy, didn't really care who he offended. That was his whole brand, at least. And I know a lot of people will laugh at me for believing it, but that was what he was supposed to be about. And now he's supposed to be kind of like building his political comeback, his resurrection on the same brand of tough, no bullshit, I call it like I see it. And I told Trump that he had to stop that insurrection. I was there on one six saying the right things on ABC. And then like to hear him answering these questions you were asking in that evasive kind of pathetic way, it just made me sort of sad. Like if Chris Christie's not going to be the guy who tries in vain, I would say, to save the Republican Party, who is? I mean, it's just pathetic, I thought. But I think that's the wrong question. The Republican Party doesn't want to be saved. And so I think that- do Do you agree with me it was pathetic? It was kind of sad, right? I read the book. I finished it. I'm not proud of this, but I finished it around 1.15 the day of the interview. And I called some of the people I turned to for editorial support. And I said, you know, but Christy had done a bunch of interviews. I'm never first. No one ever debuts their books with me. I'm always, I'm, I'm, my, and my pitch is like, come to me last. I'll try to ask you something no one else has. So I, I think I was like the third or fourth person to interview him. And I'd watched all the other interviews and then I finished the book and I was like, what the ever loving hell is this? Like, cause it was neither a rebuke of the most toxic forces in the Republican party which is what Chris Wallace talked about in an interview with the New York Times, which is, it's, it's not, a, opinion doesn't endanger either party. A different ideology does not threaten a party. It, it is the absence of truth. And to want to have, you know, days off of being Trump's guy, to say like, I took January 6th off, I wasn't on duty, <laughs> it's neither here nor there, because it pisses off the rest of the Trump base, who like Jenny Thomas is like, fight for the guy. But it doesn't get you all the way toward being against the autocratic post-truth movement. So I haven't talked to Chris Christie since that interview. He was a friend of mine, and that makes me sad. But I think that calling out something that really does endanger our country without calling out the most effective purveyors of it isn't really calling it out at all. So let's just stipulate this. If you believed in Chris Christie, if you were the kind of person who thought that he had some kind of backbone and some kind of intellectual consistency, I think you would have had to watch that interview and be saddened by it if you were a believer in him. If you were someone who always thought he was full of shit, you just thought that was confirmation of it. I was and remain sad by it. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Nicole Wallace here on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. So, Nicole, we've been talking about 
just how fucked up your former party is and about all the charlatans and con men and carnival barkers and lunatics. <laughs> I always wonder if it's bottom up or top down, but one way or the other, the GOP got kind of burned to the ground. But then out of the blue, an old face suddenly <laughs> reemerges and presents herself to us. It says, hey, I'm coming back. I'm going to reenter public life and the political fray. Someone you know well, Sarah Palin, who said she's going to run for Don Young's open seat up in Alaska, the one congressional seat that Alaska has held. Don Young was in that seat for 49 years. Amazing. Now Sarah Palin's one of 51 people trying to get it. <laughs> and last night she made her first cable appearance on, of course, Fox News with, of course, Jesse Waters to talk about why she's running and stuff. And Jesse Waters is like, basically like, hey, I know there's 51 people running for this seat, but I know you're going to win because you're you. And when you get there, things are not going to be pretty. It's going to be terrible for you. The media is going to attack. So I want to play the little sot here of Jesse Waters talking to Sarah Palin on Fox News. Here it is, Jesse Waters asking how she's going to cope with it, Sarah Palin, all that attention. You're just going to be swarmed by these reporters sticking these little microphones and recording devices in your face. Are you prepared for that onslaught? Because it's going to be pretty vicious. Uh, you know, I would never be so cocky as to say, bring it on. But <laughs> yes, I anticipate that when I walk down that hall to get my Diet Dr. Pepper, sure, the jackals are going to be there doing their jackalin. And I just think I've got nothing to lose. What more can they do? What more can they say? But heaven forbid I even uh, throw that out there because we'll, we'll see what's to come. But um, no, I'm very, very confident in um, knowing who and what I'm dealing with. A PTSD just from hearing her saying Jack, the jackals are going to be jackaling. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Like time ushers in so much healing. And I really like, I want to watch this. Like I'm excited to watch what she can do. I mean, I had the job of trying to like extract some of her raw God-given political talent and sort of thrust that and only that onto the national stage in a condensed 10-week period running against you know, a political genius and Barack Obama and his team. And to see her run on, on a smaller stage, it's a smart move for her politically. And if the people of Alaska, if the people of the district pick her, I actually think she'll be really fun to watch. I mean, her calamities, I mean, you're, you, you've reported them out better than just about anyone in Game Change. But, you know, her successes... Her ability to improvise, that convention speech where the prompter went down and she could riff, they will serve her well if she ends up in Congress. And unlike my former party, I'm still a fan of democracy. If the people pick her and she wins and she goes to Congress, it should be fascinating to watch. And unlike Trump, she actually tried to learn the stuff she didn't know. And unlike Trump, she tried to be smarter than I think she felt. Now, the bad things she ushered in are so well publicized. And right. I've said to you already in this conversation that I'll spend the rest of my days trying to reveal and defeat the autocratic forces that have taken over and subsumed the Republican Party. I think she's a part of that. So ideologically, you know, I couldn't be farther apart from the woman I once championed and helped sort of survive on the ticket when John McCain picked her as his running mate. But it's just a sort of the political wonder of it all really does capture my attention. Right. Well, there's like two different pieces of this conversation. I think they're both like you're the perfect person to have because of the things that are embedded in what you just said. So 
One conversation is a conversation about Sarah Palin getting back on the national stage, deciding to run for this office, and just the incredible, you know, my goat rodeo is one of my favorite phrases, but in, you know, in Alaska, it's like a ram rodeo or something, right? <laughs> I mean, what is going to happen up there is crazy town. I want to talk about just that. What are her political prospects? Could she actually win this race? We'll talk about that. And then I want to kind of step back a little bit and kind of connect up the Palin phenomenon with the other larger things we're talking about, which we did the first time we talked on the podcast back Amazingly, I forgot that this is the case. The podcast we published on the morning of election day of 2020. And so we talked like a couple days before that. Mm -hmm. And we had a long discussion about Palin and what she meant. And I want to go back to that a little bit just because she's now back in a time when some of the changes that you argued she ushered in or that she was the canary in the coal mine for have not just caught up with her, like where she was the canary in the coal mine. It's like, they're now, you know, with Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and obviously a bunch of other non-female candidates who are, you know, they've way surpassed her, her racism, her nativism, her xenophobia, her know-nothingism, her populism. All those things are now have, yeah. like she it's like she's not just the canary in the coal mine. It was like she opened the Pandora's box. She's the canary in the coal mine that opened the Pandora's box. And now there are these like hyper Palins out there who are more yeah. Palin than Palin. So I want to talk about that. But first, let's just focus on the Alaska thing. OK, so okay. I said a second ago. Don Young, an amazing run in Congress. Open seat. There's only one congressional House seat in in Alaska. Don Young, 25 terms up there, right? An institution in Alaska and kind of more in the Lisa Murkowski vein than in the Sarah Palin vein. So you now have, and this is the craziness of this, and it takes just a second to say it. 51 people, as of now, are running in a special open primary in June. The top four vote getters will move on to a special general election in August. Oh, and that's also being conducted with four candidates with ranked choice voting like they had in the New York City mayor's race, which Mm -hmm. is a system designed to drive towards moderates, not towards the extremes, I will say. So then the winner of that gets to fill Don Young's seat for the rest of the term and gets an automatic slot in the general election in November. On that same day in August, Nicole, they also have the normal open primary for the seat just to figure out who will compete with the person who wins the special general election that day. I think voters are going to be like befuddled and baffled and all that. And I want to ask you first this, does that just help Sarah Palin confusion in a giant field where she's the only person people know when she left office, when she quit, her approval rating was like 31%. You guys, as she would put it, you guys had destroyed her in Alaska. <laughs> I'd say with all irony. Remember, that was her thing. It was always like, you're going to kill me in Alaska by making me do all these things. Yeah. So, you know, she left very unpopular, but she's now easily the best known candidate running and in a giant multi-candidate field in a very confusing environment. Maybe Jesse Waters is right. Maybe we should just assume that Sarah Palin's going to at least make it to the general election, if not all the way to Congress. We should assume she will. You know, we live in an era as much as you and I maybe moan it because of its damage to democracy where name recognition and, you know, the celebrity antics that she helped usher in are the name of the game. So anything less than her running away with it is a real defeat. She was obsessed. She was fixated on the day of the second Katie Couric sit down or the first, or we were in the car sort of trying to prep her. It took place on the sidelines of the UNGA and she was fixated on these Alaska polls. Now, what hurt her in Alaska had nothing to do with the presidential contest. It was Trooper Gate, <laughs> yeah, these allegations of, of sure. corruption and meddling in law enforcement. It was some ethics stuff. So what hurt her in 
Alaska really had very little to do with the McCain campaign. Of course. She should win running away with it. She's an, a national and international figure of sort of the Trump Carlson right. Right. And you look, I mean, you know, the most famous thing that she's done recently was performing on this reality show called The Masked Singer, where she danced to Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back while wearing a pink and purple bear costume. Okay. Oh, I missed like, that. Like, your point about, about our carnival culture and our surreal reality show culture, like she's again pushing the limits, right? A purple and pink bear costume to Baby Got Back. That's like her main calling card now. She tries to make her- <laughs> I have to look for that. <laughs> And of course, in the elite world, which I'm sure, you know, will be another calling card for her. You know, she waged that libel suit against the New York Times, which she lost. The jury tossed it out. And after the judge said that if the jury ruled in her favor, you know, it was ridiculous because her case was so meritless and that the jury sided with her. The judge was going to overrule the jury. So she loses this big libel case against the Manable Times. But presumably that will also engender some sympathy on the right for her. Like she's fighting the good fight against the New York Times. Yeah. She's dancing in a pink and purple bear costume. That's fantastic. Great. She looks like Trump. If she said you're fired while she was doing that dance, she'd be even more powerful. I just I can't help but think that in the end that all of that juice and all the help from Fox News is going to make her. I mean, not the guaranteed winner, but the prohibitive favorite in that race. First of all, I'm ready to move to Alaska for the summer because I think covering <laughs> it, covering it would be like the greatest circus of all time. But I do think we might have Sarah Palin in Congress. And she said, you know, yesterday to water, she said she's looking forward to running into AOC in the halls and challenging her to a debate. I mean, you know, <laughs> are you ready for that? Covering that on a daily basis on Deadline White House? <laughs> <laughs> Look, we, we should all plan on it. She is so much this moment in Republican politics. And if you look at what I think we focused on as one of the most disturbing hallmarks of the autocratic sort of fever that hasn't broken, if anything has accelerated, you know, she wanted to give a speech on election night. She wanted right. to keep fighting and yeah. the plugs were pulled yep. in Arizona where the victory party was. And so she is just quintessential, you know, post-Republican Trumpism. And, and the debate I'd rather see isn't really with Sarah Palin and AOC. It's with Sarah Palin and Liz Cheney. Someone yes. who thinks that yeah. the party should stand for the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution and someone who, you know, probably couldn't find the rule of law or the Constitution if her life depended on it. I mean, she will, I think, have less in common with Liz Cheney than even AOC. Well, right. And now all of these things are throwing me back to the prior time frame. First of all, I will say in that sound we played, not only did she say jackaling around, which I thought was <laughs> the jackals will be jackaling. Um, she she. she she, I, love, she, I really like am looking forward to the words she adds. The, the, you know? jack, the jackals are going to be jackaling. They're doing their yeah. jackaling. Yeah. She also cited, of course, she cited that she'd be headed for, to get her diet Dr. Pepper, which uh, another famous Halen thing that you were all too familiar with when she reduced herself down to skin and bones during the campaign yeah. by do, doing nothing but drinking diet Dr. Pepper all day long and eating like one bite of steak each day. Lunatic behavior that upset our friend Steve Schmidt very much. You know, the thing that also, though, I, I'm reminded of that period was, and this gets to what she actually is, she actually qualified for office. She will be a spectacle and it will be in some weird ways, both horrifying and amazing to cover her if she gets to Congress. But when McCain first put her on the ticket and you guys were hiding her from the press for a period of time because you started to realize she didn't know anything about anything. There was a conversation that you had where it was like one of your campaign colleagues who was like, you know, when we put her out, we got to put her with Russert or we got to put her on 60 minutes. And your answer was like, what? <laughs> uh, Fuck no. Are you out of your mind? I, me, 
just for like the historical record, I, I've got to like dig into your question. We were never hiding her from the press. We were trying to ensure her success. <laughs> we were trying to ensure her success yes. when the inevitable engagements with the press took place. And I prepped her for three things. And then I was cast off the island by her. Right. I prepped her for her announcement speech at right. that hotel in yep. Someplace in Ohio. In Ohio, yeah. I prepped her for her convention speech, which mm -hmm. was largely in the hotel room right. in Minneapolis. And then I prepped her for the, her first two interviews. The first one was Charlie Gibson. Yep. And Charlie Gibson and John Banner, his EP, flew to Alaska. And we did that interview in four parts, one in her home, one at her high school. She was a high school basketball star. And two more parts, I think in... Anchorage. So they came to Wasilla to do the stuff at her house in her high school, but then there was stuff in Anchorage. They shot a rally right. and they shot, uh, it was her first trip back to Alaska after being named. And then I don't know, something on a pipeline, maybe something outside. Right. So I prepped her for four interviews. So was involved in introducing her to the country by prepping her for that interview. It was a four part interview with the anchor of ABC News. Yep. The next thing I prepped her for was her second interview, which was Sean Hannity. <laughs> and then the third one was part one of Katie Couric. And then I was no longer involved in her prep yes, outfit. So, yes. for, so for, I, reason, I, for reasons well known to the public so at this point. Yeah. I can't sort of entertain the notion that I was involved in hiding her from the press. Was all no, I no, did. no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. Wait, let me just say to clarify my side. When I said okay. you, I didn't mean you. I meant <laughs> that the campaign did not like roll her out into the glare of the media at the beginning. There were a lot of reporters even by the convention were like, when are you guys going to let us talk to her? When are you going to let us talk to her? You could either see that as hiding her from the press or you could see it as preparing her for success when she doesn't know anything. But there was the same strategy, which was keep her back for a little while and give her time to prep so maybe she could get through an interview. And I will say, you know, this is from you in this interview we did that in that first podcast interview. You said that Salter said her interview has to be with Russell or 60. I'm quoting now. And I said, you're out of your fucking mind. She cannot do either of those things. And I thought that a network interview would be a little more broad and a little less um sort of policy specific. That's a Nicole Wallace quote. I believe you'll stand by that quote, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And the only thing I want to add here is that I was wrong. I mean, what she could have ushered in if she'd sat down with Russert is, you know, Tim, you're everything that's wrong with right. American politics. Who fucking cares what my position is on NATO? I mean, you know, we ended up having a president in Donald Trump who, you know, to this day sees no value in NATO. So my, my only point is the kinds of things that I thought wouldn't serve her may have been exactly where we should have showcased her. And I mean, maybe maybe she was right in feeling like people like me damaged her by trying to prepare her and let her introduce her whole story. I mean, and, and not that Charlie Gibson pulled any right. punches. He did not. But we thought by going with her home, we would capture, you know, the whole Palin story. But maybe that's outdated. Maybe we should have sat her down for Russert and and let her give them her take your elite establishment media Sunday right. show and shove it. Maybe that would have served her better. And and my only point is we were conventional political operatives and that didn't serve her at all. I mean, I would say the press was also conventional in the sense that they thought that. Well, well I mean, more importantly, John McCain was conventional. Well, right, right. And, and, and John McCain valued yes. those forums and he respected and revered the format of the Sunday show and he respected Right. The program right. 60 Minutes. And so we were in this conventional mindset of if she did those things, we want her to do them the way John McCain would want them to go. And so fuck no when I said to uh, Salter about 60 and meet the press. But I think it was 
yeah. she wouldn't nail it. And, and John McCain has such reverence for those two programs specifically, Meet the Press and 60, that we would want her, her performance to be at a higher level. But in just the Sarah Palin silo, that was probably all wrong. It's an interesting question. The reality is that John McCain was, at that point, 76 years old. He had a two previous scares, <laughs> cancer scares, right? People in the press, people in the country, the mainstream of the country, very focused on who the running mate was going to be because that person had to be ready from day one to be president right. of the United States. So look, people were rightly concerned about McCain's health and they were really focused on her qualifications. Obviously, a bunch of other people weren't, as we have discussed, you know, there was obviously she ignited all this excitement on the right. But you guys were focused on trying to make sure that she seemed and was you know, like could meet the bar of ready to be president from day one. And the other thing you said in that interview, which I thought, you know, we tried to write about in Game Change in a kind of sympathetic way was that you said, you know, she knew how uninformed she was and she was mortified by it. And she fell asleep every night with these stacks of note cards on her bed and highlighters trying to make up for the gap in her knowledge, which had become apparent to her, which is, I think, true and not actually a knock on her. I mean, it is that it isn't, but she realized that she was in over her head and that was scaring her. And you had thrown her into the deep end of the pool, right? This woman was, you know, a couple months earlier, no one had thought she would be on the ticket. All of a sudden, she's plucked out of nowhere and thrown onto the ticket. And, you know, putting her on Meet the Press or, or on 60 Minutes would have been a very high risk venture. And actually putting her on with Charlie was too, in a way. And I'll, I'll show you exactly why. So I want to play a little bit from the movie Game Change. Nicole Wallace here, played by Sarah Paulson. Sarah Palin, played by Julianne Moore. We have a little scene, a little mashup of the scene where, where you are preparing her on the plane on the way to Alaska to get ready for the Charlie Gibson interview. And it's actually kind of nice because it's about Russia, well, which is kind of in the news right now. And then we'll hear what actually happened in the interview. And then the fallout from that. So here, let's first let, listen to the, to the little, little game change clip here. <laughs> I've come up with a list of questions that I think Charlie's most likely to ask. If you memorize these answers, I'm sure you're going to nail this interview. How do you know he'll ask these? I was the White House communications director. It's my job to figure out the questions. Shushkashvili. Saakashvili, the president of Georgia. Shushkashvili. Saakashvili. 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 Really. Let's start with Russia and Georgia. Do you believe the United States should try to restore Georgian sovereignty over South Ossetia and Abkhazia? First off, we're going to continue good relations with Saakashvili there. I was able to speak with him the other day, and we've got to keep an eye on Russia. They're our next-door neighbors, and you can actually see Russia from land here in Alaska. I want to say three things about that clip. One, while it's playing and, and Saakashvili is being said, Nicole's lips were moving to, to, to <laughs> pronounce Saakashvili the right way. You were doing that on camera just now. So you're still traumatized by this. Number two, in the movie, when she gets it right with Charlie, which she did on national television, you guys are ecstatic and you get to see that you and Steve in the movie, like being excited because she actually nails it. And then of course she says like, we can actually see Russia from land here in Alaska and you guys are mortified in the room. And We'll finish the sound by playing this last little thing, because I think in that moment, you guys couldn't maybe anticipate specifically what was going to happen, but you sort of had some idea that that answer might come back to haunt her, as it did not that much longer when uh, Tina Fey did her famous Sarah Palin invitation on Saturday Night Live and said this. You know, Hillary and I don't agree on everything. Anything. <laughs> I believe that diplomacy should be the cornerstone of any foreign policy. And I can see Russia from my house. Uh, such a great trip down memory lane. Uh, I play those things because it brings us back to the thing we were just discussing. In some ways, you could say maybe we should have done something more like fought the traditional standards. 
But underlying the traditional standards of ready to be president for day one is that Katie Couric jab. The reason Katie Couric destroyed her public reputation is because Tina seized on things that she said in interviews that demonstrated she was not up to being vice president or president. And she made fun of them. And she made her kind of a national laughingstock with her own words. And I guess my point about that is that at the core of that, even in Tina Fey's comedy on Saturday Night Live, is this sense of like, this is a serious job that you need to know stuff for. And we're going to take this seriously. And the press is going to vet you the way the press does. And I, Tina Fey, I'm going to vet you a different way. And in that sense, I think you guys were right to be concerned Maybe you could have like tried to mow mow 60 minutes or beat the press. But in the end, the country knows this is a really important job and you're going to get the questions of preparedness and your actual substantive knowledge actually do matter. John McCain was right. And you guys were right to be worried about it. But that's so 2008. I mean, obviously, the country doesn't give a fuck about preparation because it elected Donald Trump. Not in 2008. Something happened between 2008 and 2016. Because, I mean, that was certainly our theory of the case. And it was, I think, the, the country's theory of the case. It might have even been, you know, Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's theory of the case in 16 when they didn't think they were going to win. But, I mean, that was our theory of the case in 08. And I guess that's our defense. I, I mean, the only thing I would add about how aware she was of her intellectual and, ex- and they were intellectual. She had the ability to learn and be brief. She just didn't have the time is that something happened and that that was no longer a prerequisite you know the country elected donald trump in 2016 and he was very much you know in the fight you know he's under the delusion that that he won in 2020 so the country decided in those intervening years that experience and knowledge did not matter donald trump's base was never in jeopardy and he never once displayed any acumen for any policy debate ever. He wanted to pull out of NATO. He thought Putin was great. He thinks Putin was great. He said he was clever at the beginning of the war. He laced, you know, racism and ineptitude and corruption into every single day as the American president. So, you know, he changed the calculations for someone like Sarah Palin. And he made Sarah Palin possible. And I'll say this to you, not just as a member of Congress, but if he can win, she should be a viable presidential candidate. If he can win, she should be in the conversation because she was all those things before he was. We have a headline coming out of this podcast, Newsbreak. Nicole Wallace predicts Palin presidency. Um, I, I don't, but I'm just saying if, you know, it's... I understand. It's I understand X the analysis. Why? Like, if he yeah. can win, then she should be in the conversation. Right. And I look, I mean, if she gets to Congress, she might be in that conversation. But this then gets back to the thing I said that I want to hear you talk about. Because, I mean, I asserted some things, and it's a good place for we can end this conversation about Palin with this, because it's all, you know, we'll see what happens. But the most striking thing in that interview we did the first time we did the podcast was you telling a story that I don't believe you had ever told to me previously, which is a very small category of stories about these matters, where you said there was a moment, you know, in the period of time when Palin was saying, palling around with terrorists and saying racist shit, basically, and that the crowds at her rallies were going nuts. And McCain was, was shattered by the criticism, getting phone calls from Biden and Ted Kennedy and John Lewis. And he was shriveling up yeah. under that attack. And you said... You were sitting on the bus one day that the Republican Party fractured irreparably. And you came back to the point later in the interview and you said, you know, I think that the fracture between McCain and Palin was over racism. 
and that that moment you know, was in some ways the end of the Republican Party that I believed in. And you could like pinpoint it to a moment, right? And that was my point about Palin as, and it's a point you made, was a point about Palin as a canary in a coal mine or the letting the genie out of the bottle or the Pandora's box opening, whatever. So I guess my question is this in that context. I'd love you to just hark back to that a little bit, but also then carry forward, right? Because in this party, we said things have changed a lot between 2008 and 2016, and they've changed even more between 2016 and 2022. In this party... Sarah Palin, you know, compared to Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn and a bunch of these people, the stuff she did back then doesn't seem that crazy. I mean, by that standard, she's no longer the far right edge of the party. And I I don't want to excuse her, but, you know, she seems sane compared to some of these people in Congress now. And so I guess that raises the question of would she really be like in the presidential running or is she now kind of a relic of the past and she's going to be seen as a rhino (laughs) by some of the people in the party? What do you think about all that? But connect that past to the present and the future. Well, I think it's a tragedy for what the Republican Party once was, that relative to the worst of the Republicans now, she could seem relatively moderate. I mean, she is, you know, extremely proud of being uninformed. She's extremely proud of being a grievance politician. And that is not in the spirit of, you know, a Reagan-Lincoln vision of the Republican Party, which may be buried and dead but certainly animated the people I worked for, George W. Bush and Jeb Bush and John McCain. And, you know, me and my minivan bus full of Republicans still longing for those days may bemoan it and she may soar to prominence in this version of the Republican Party, but it's not Republican, it's not conservative, it's this strain of nativism and protectionism and isolationism that Bush worried about, that she flirted with, that ushered in that break with McCain. And I remember telling you that story. We're sitting on the bus, this me and Salter and John and Steve, and the calls were coming in from Kennedy and Biden. And it was about not just the things she was saying on the podium, but the things people in the crowd were saying. And I think McCain was so rattled that it led to the confrontation with his own supporter that that is still pointed to as one man's effort to stand up against the rising dark ascendant forces on the American right. But I don't think there's anything that puts her, you know, to the left of the crazies. I think they're all one and the same, just with different applause lines. Sarah Palin has never needed a permission structure for anything, but I I can't help but think knowing her the way that I do, not probably as well as you do, although both of us, I think, are not exactly in her circle of intimates. I think there's some part of her that's jealous of the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and people like that can get so much attention and, you know, they become stars in the Republican Party. She was a star herself. She probably wants some of that back. She's now a rich woman. She made a lot of money with her book and, and doing other things, although she's not apparently rich enough that she doesn't have to go on reality shows wearing pink and purple bear <laughs> costumes. But I think she must feel like a little eclipsed by some of those women in Congress and their guns. And she probably also says, hey, looks like it's okay now to, to tow automatic weapons around. Like no one even like raises an eyebrow. I can now go full hockey mom, full moose hunting, crazy ass, you know, the QAnon people are okay now. I can do that too. She's like iron filings to a magnet. She's like the iron filings now. Like the magnet has become the crazy right where she's going to feel right at home, I think. I have no idea how she feels. And I have no idea, you know, how she feels when she sees these other really extreme... Unlike me, you feel, you, you feel <laughs> hesitant to speculate. I feel for, perfectly free to speculate. I, I just, I mean, I have no idea. But yeah, I know, I know. 
I think what was always a big mystery, and I think even inside Fox News, where she landed after her shooting star political career of 08, was why she didn't turn it into anything. You know, in, in today's Republican Party, you, you could move and run for Congress on the heels of that kind of flaming out. Like everything's upside down. Success is failure. Failure is success. I mean, why did it take her this long to do something with what she thought was her, you know, stardom ruined by people like me? I mean, why are we why are we talking about the possibility of a run against 51 other people so many years later, why didn't she do anything right. with all that raw talent and the national spotlight and the huge Fox contract and the student? You know, why didn't she rub sticks together when there were a lot more sparks around her then? And I don't know the answer. I mean, I, I remember writing a story in New York Magazine that was on the cover that was like a speculative scenario in 2012, President Palin. I thought she was going to springboard out of 2008, the loss, and she would run the table in the 2012 nomination fight and she could you know, potentially be the nominee and, and potentially even president, as horrifying as that specter was. Here's the last question I'll ask you, and then we'll move on and talk about Joe Biden, because I will say that in that first interview we did on the couple of days before the election, you were sort of talking about the, the promise if Biden held on to win, and which he did, and he put this coalition together, you know, could he start to kind of put things back together in the country and, and maybe even bring the Republican Party back to its senses? Obviously, we've learned since then that that's not what's happened. At that point, it was binary. It was like, Biden's going to win, and there's a chance of, for hope or Trump's going to win and we're fucking doomed. And it turns out that Biden won and we're still fucking doomed as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. But I guess here's my, my attempt at optimism. Trump has now endorsed Palin. Okay. And she was the first Republican, big name Republican to endorse him in 2016. He repaid the favor. He endorsed her over the weekend. He's endorsed a lot of people who are having trouble right now. Yeah. You know? We know that, that Purdue's having trouble. The Herschel Walker thing is a problem. There's places where Trump's you know, the thing he's most proud of, that he flexes his muscle and he gets people in, that might not prove to be true in this primary season. And let's contemplate the possibility that Palin doesn't win, right? As part of that larger story, the testing of Trump's actual continued power over the Republican Party, you know, is it possible that maybe the thing that we've been saying isn't what's going to happen and that what all of this primary season of this 2022 is going to prove that Trump is not invincible and that he loses some of these. And if that happens, like, what does that mean for Trump's continued power of the GOP? Because fear has been what it's all about, Nicole. You know, they all fell in line because they feared him and his voters. And if Trump fails to deliver those voters, I just wonder whether that's the beginning, maybe, of the atrophy and, and ultimately the end of his hold over the party. Look, I, you know how I feel about hope. It is the gateway to despair. So while I hope that his power over the party and the power of his endorsement are atrophying, to use your word, I, I just don't see any evidence of it. You know, I, I hope that's the case. I think that that is the best way. It beats any other method for getting rid of Trumpism, for him to start losing to lose primaries, for his endorsed candidates to lose, to, to really root him out from the body politic. But I'll have to see more, more evidence. You know, John Bolton has been doing polling since he left, his ex-national yeah. security advisor. He sees yeah. it in the polls. I look at the poll. I talk to the pollster. I don't see it. Yeah. So I, I hope that's the case. I just, I just haven't seen a ton of evidence of it yet. Hope is the gateway to despair. <laughs> it's also actually the only path through despair. So it turns know, out that it's like, it's the, only, it's, it's the just, only path I, we have. I guess know? I've hoped at so many points. I mean, I hoped that 
you know, I've gone back and sort of examined my predictions leading up to 2016. And, yeah. and a lot of them were around Megyn Kelly. You know, we focus so much on Hillary, but when he was attacking Fox News's biggest star and talking about Megyn yeah. Kelly bleeding from every orifice, I was like, people are going to elect that guy. Like, he's uninformed, he's corrupt, and he's disgusting. And he's a proud misogynist who grabs women between the legs and attacks Fox's biggest star. I hoped that that was the country I lived in, that just they wouldn't vote for that guy. And, and I was wrong. And I guess it just changed my capacity to hope that we're going to rid ourselves of him. I mean, I hoped that there would be a red line. I hoped that good people on both sides of a KKK rally would push the Portmans and the Burrs and the once decent, at least fact-based Republicans away from him. And it never did. I hoped January 6th would make Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy say, all right, fine. You know what, uncle, let's have a commission like the 9-11 commission. And it didn't. So I hope that something will break it. I just have been disappointed and crushed by the inability for red line after red line after red line after red line, atrocities being carried out by Donald Trump's closest friend on the world stage, Vladimir Putin, hasn't broken Tucker Carlson's fealty to Putin. I just think we have to be careful not to hope that something will, will change that calculation. All right. We're going to take another break here. And look, that's a litany of disappointment, despair, sadness. There is, however... In the Republican Party. In, I mean, in one party. So I know. Well, that's what we're going to talk about when we come out after the break. We'll talk about the fact that, you know, as of right now, at least, the, the White House is controlled by a Democrat. And in many ways, he seems to be doing a pretty good job, although it's not really being reflected in his approval ratings. And there is this other party, and it's the one that, whatever your feelings about the Democratic Party, they are actually the party that's committed to democracy, which makes them superior to the other party, which isn't. Uh, so we're going to talk about Joe Biden and how he's handled Ukraine and Russia and really the whole Biden presidency after we come back uh, a little more with Nicole Walls here on Hell and High Water. And we are back with Nicole Wallace for the final segment of this epic two-part episode of Hell and High Water. We spent basically all of part two of this podcast, Nicole, talking essentially only about how fucked up the Republican Party is. And, you know, look, I mean, that's a topic you and I could discuss ad nauseum and ad infinitum. But I feel like we owe our listeners just a little tiny discussion of the current actual president of the United States, a Democrat by the name of Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. You know, Biden gave a speech in Warsaw. On a Saturday, a couple weeks back, it's a speech that some people really loved for its moral clarity and its energy and its force, and that a bunch of other people, particularly some people in the foreign policy establishment, hated because Biden supposedly ad-libbed, although I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, it wasn't in the speech text, but I'm pretty sure he knew what he was saying and he said what he wanted to say. But they're like, oh, he ad-libbed, the part that everyone paid attention to. And, you know, look, some of these people don't like the idea of a president ad-libbing during a hot war with a nuclear-armed Russia. Uh, not totally unreasonable to have that objection, but even those people like the moral clarity of what Biden said. So let's listen to a little bit of that speech, the key part, and, and we'll talk about it on the other side, along with a slightly broader discussion of the Biden presidency in our final minutes here today. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never erase a people's love for liberty. Brutality will never grind down their will to be free. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principles, hope and light. 
of decency and dignity and freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. So there was that speech, Nicole. You know, all the focus is on this man cannot remain in power. Was that a gaffe? Was that not a gaffe? But everybody looked at Biden giving that speech and saw, well, I shouldn't say everybody. <laughs> it was a strong speech. And whatever you made of the ad lib at the end, there's been a lot of praise across both parties, frankly, for Biden's leadership on Ukraine, keeping NATO together, all the stuff that's happened over these last five weeks. And yet, you know, we just got this last NBC News poll that's got him at 40 percent. And there's just an increasing sense. There's been for a while, but there's really right now this sense of like, man, we are fucked in these midterms coming up that Joe Biden's not getting any credit. He gave a good state of the union address. People thought it was good. He got no bounce out of that. He's been a great leader or a very good leader, a credible leader of NATO in this moment of crisis. World War Three war in Europe, Russia, invading Ukraine, Joe Biden doing a great job. Republicans say it. Democrats say it. And none of it's accruing to his political benefit. And Democrats increasingly are utterly freaked out about getting crushed in the midterms. What do you make of all that? I mean, what I make of it is that perhaps the mediums are not the drivers of public opinion anymore. We're not like a presidential speech away from turning around your fortunes in the polls. As we were just talking about, people get their information in hermetically sealed fire hose chambers, not echo chambers where a presidential speech or a state of the union can resonate for a few days. And I don't think the Democrats have deputized messengers and have distributed messages that benefit them politically. I think that's undeniable. I've described the Biden economy as sort of the Rodney Dangerfield, like it can't get any respect. You've got this incredible jobs number out today. I doubt you'll see a bounce in Joe Biden's job numbers. You should. The old laws of message and physics suggest you might. But all that people process and experience on the question of the economy is inflation, which is terrible. But they have no ability to broaden out what people hear. And so I think we spend a lot of time talking about the message, tweaking the speech, tweaking the. I think that maybe that's not the problem. Maybe it's what people are hearing. And, you know, I'm not a campaign tactician anymore, but I know that if Mark McKinnon and Matt Dowd and Ken Melman were on the task, they would be looking at what people are hearing. And I don't know who has those jobs in the Democratic Party, but. They really, I think, need to look at what people are hearing when they're asked about the economy, what people are examining when they're evaluating his strength as a leader. I don't know from a policy. I mean, Republicans wanted to leave Afghanistan. So I don't know what the policy questions are that Democrats or Republicans think Biden got wrong. It's just this, this feeling and this mood. And I think they have a diminishing window of time to turn it around. And again, I don't know what policy the Biden White House has run afoul of. I mean, on COVID, we're in a post-COVID moment. On the economy, what is in their control, they seem to be proactive on. On Ukraine, he has stood with the good guys and been aggressive against the bad guys. So I don't know what the sort of message and substance problem is, but it is undeniable that there is a message delivery and a persuasion problem that the Democrats have a closing window to try to fix. Do you think Biden's been a good president? Yeah. What's your assessment one year in? We're not forgetting about messaging. Like Joe Biden has been a good president, very good president, excellent president. I mean, look, inflation's a huge fucking problem. It's the only thing anybody talks about the country basically everywhere you go. And this is something that some of us warned about all along, not in a hectoring way, but just like, guys, you know, once you get inflation to get to a certain point, it will become the only topic of conversation because with some of the good jobs numbers you point to, Nicole, it's like just the way people's lives are. It's like, man, when prices are rising, people get very focused on that very quickly because a lot of people... You know, it really changes their way of life when they have to pay more or dramatically more for stuff. 
That is the primary politically salient thing out there. But again, I kind of asked that question of, do you think Biden has done enough on that? And more broadly, what's your assessment of that first year of his presidency? Good, fair, middling, great? I think he's done a good job. I mean, I think when you take over the United States of America after Donald Trump ran it off the road, not just, you know, a few times, but every freaking day, and you had this abbreviated transition and, you, you know, the pandemic's raging and totally unpredictable, I think he's done a good job. I think we're a country in crisis. And I think if we're a country that is so mad about inflation, we don't care who our leader is, then anyone would be in trouble. But the notion that, like, there's stuff that was on the table that he didn't do. If that's the case, I don't know what that stuff was. And I think the embargo on Russian oil was an important national security decision, and I support it. But I think a lot of people don't want, you know, the the pain, the economic despair is real. And I think Joe Biden treats it with the respect it deserves. And I think it's the crisis that it should be for American families and American life. I think that one of the hard things to sort of reconcile with is that on questions of the economy, there's not as much as a president with a good economy claims there is that they can do. And unfortunately, with a challenging economic picture, there's not as much, you know, president can't flip a switch and fix inflation. If they could, they would. But I think it's, again, about the country and, and the country's mood may just be too sour to sort of accept the effort and they may just be processing the results and they may be interpreting the results at the grocery store, which is a brutal trip for anybody, or the gas station, which is equally brutal. But if they're going to examine the policy questions, I, I don't know how many of the policy questions Joe Biden has taken that land him outside the mainstream of the American public on, on anything. What do you think? I, I agree with you. I think it's been a very hard time to be president, but I do think there's been a lack of political focus in certain areas. And you and I have talked a lot about the voting rights thing. Like some of the things, if I were them, that I'd be most worried about is the collapse in their support among black voters, which has been really quite stunning and continues in the most recent polling. I think they've made some choices that I understand them and trying to navigate through COVID, which has been this kind of wave after wave after wave of crisis has made it really hard, you know, because every time you start to think you're going to be able to run to daylight, you get hit in the head with another COVID situation. And I think God, it's such a complicated thing to, to parse what they might have done differently on COVID, but I still think that the combination of COVID and inflation has made it very daunting political circumstances for that. Brutal. Even though I think on substance, they've done a fine job and been competent and so on. And I guess that raises a question that, that we can end on, which is what happens if Republicans take control of the House of Representatives in November, which is by far <laughs> the likeliest outcome right now. The likeliest I... outcome, whether it's by a lot or a little, Republicans are going to control the House of Representatives almost certainly after November. And there's very few elected Democrats, I'll tell you right now, who don't believe that to be true. It's not a pundit talking. We're not just reading polls. Democrats are kind of getting increasingly resigned to the notion that that's what's coming. So what does that mean for America? I mean, buckle up, Buttercup. If the Republicans take over, you will see Marjorie Taylor Greene in control of a committee. You will see Anthony Fauci and perhaps some blasts from the past, maybe the Intel chiefs that signed. I mean, buckle up. The people will start speaking positively about Benghazi as, look, even Benghazi committee members didn't do that. Even the Benghazi committee didn't demand that. You know, I mean, all I can say is buckle up. Well, let me ask you this then. 
You know, the last time we talked, we were in the middle of COVID. It was like, again, a year ago. I mean, really deep in the middle of it. And since then, you, you've had COVID. It was a big part of when we talked about what life was like then. I remember having a conversation about, you know, getting through the, the craziness of the pandemic and how tough it was emotionally on, on, on all of us. And, and we talked about it the last time you were on here. I guess I'm curious about where your head's at right now, just as a human being. Like, are you, are you feeling like we've just talked about a lot of kind of apocalyptic things yeah. and about, you know, the stakes for a lot of these decisions and a lot of the horrible toxic shit in our politics. And yet, like when we see each other, I still feel like in some weird way, like you're basically a hopeful person. It's like part of the reason yeah. why it's part of the reason why I love you. So I wonder, like, do you feel hopeful about the future? And if you do, why? Like, what is it that animates that persistent Wallace hope? <laughs> I mean, I have a great kid who got the worst of COVID, right? He did 18 months of remote school. His school was open. They were decisions his parents made because we were scared. Being on the other side of COVID, I don't have any clarity on COVID. I mean, it was bad enough that I'm glad I lived my life trying to avoid it, but it wasn't so bad that I'm confident in every choice I made as a mom. But I think that I am hopeful because I don't know. I think there's something about the Ukraine story that just like shakes me to my core and makes me grateful that we still have the safety and security that as bad as things get, there aren't bombs dropping outside of our window. And I think that there is something about connections that I'll never take for granted. I mean, mine with you, we've been through all of the iterations of our careers and sort of even through COVID stay connected, not just work-wise, but as friends. And I think you know, what keeps me up at night are the reports about kids struggling. And there's reporting today about, I think, 61% of teens are, are in some sort of despair-like situation. I mean, yeah. I really worry about kids growing up in this time of plague and war and, you know, how we sort of keep it honest, but not so bleak for them. And I think that should be the whole focus. And I think that yeah, I took my kid to see two movies. I took him to see The Batman is so bleak and so dark and <laughs> Mike and I sat behind my son and two friends and we kept leaning over like you guys okay you you, you want to duck out this is too scary and they would turn, they're like we're fine I'm like oh my god what kind of childhood have they had that like Gotham looks fun <laughs> you know, like Liam's like us Gotham is this New York I'm like oh my god no this isn't New York honey and you know <laughs> so like I, I just keep thinking about we got to keep it honest. We got to keep it real. We can't shield them from anything. I mean, because of COVID and because of how it affected them, they know all the bad stuff, right? But we just have to keep hope that we still live in the greatest of times and the greatest of innovations and we can have these debates and we can say the things we say on TV and we have friends and fellow travelers to have those conversations with. I think you have to still believe that there's hope and that the good guys can win. At least I do. Well, you know, when I heard Joe Biden in that State of the Union, he said there was something that he was talking about, I think, about the Russia-Ukraine news. But there was a line in that speech where he said, I know the news can sound alarming, but we're all going to be OK. And I guess I believe that. But there's a lot of times when I don't know exactly why I believe that. And I was <laughs> and, and just I did this innate like congenital optimism, you know, the pharmaceuticals I'm taking. I, I don't know like what it is, but somehow I kind of go, yeah, yeah, I guess we're going to be OK, even despite all evidence to the contrary. And part of the reason why I think you and I have some kind of bond here is that we sort of are like, yeah, we're going to be okay. I got to keep believing that, even though a lot of things that come out of our mouths as we observe what's going on are like, fuck, man, this news is alarming. Yeah, super alarming. There are a lot of things about 
broadcasting that I'm not great at, like reading a teleprompter and <laughs> not always best at pronunciations. But but I think I understand, you know, the angst and I try to sort of give it voice, but not get the balance between sort of hope and despair wrong. But I think there's a lot to be worried about. And look, I, I think the fact that the country picked Joe Biden and as we said, like the popular vote wasn't even close. It's the electoral count and, and the, you know, mischief that Donald Trump and his allies would have had done in Congress. But, you know, the country did pick Joe Biden, who largely, for better or for worse, campaigned from his basement. So the country did make the sounder choice. And I think it's sort of in our nature to worry about the next time. Nicole Wallace, I will say, you can drop one last F-bomb for your fans. I would say it's fucking great to see you, Nicole fucking Wallace. A, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. That was, was, was low-hanging fruit. Cheap. Uh, I, I, there were, I heard you drop a few. We're going to have to do an F-bomb count. There were plenty. There were a few. There were a few that snuck in. My son loves the clip where I called Laura Ingram and the critics of Colonel Vidman who were suggesting he had dual loyalties, chicken shit. And it's like his favorite thing to play on the internet. So I have to be careful. Well, yeah, yes. I mean, keep him away from explicit podcasts. Thank exactly. you for taking all the, thank you for, thank you for being here. Thank you for expressing thank some you. hope. Thank you for, uh, for hanging out. Love you. Love you guys. Thank you. Helen Highwater is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Nicole Wallace for being with us on this special two-part episode. If you like this special two-part episode, please subscribe to Helen High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Helen High Water. Pierre Benhamé and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray, she's our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer and... The man, the myth, the legend, Marshall Eisen. He's our executive producer.